This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to this edition of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. July 1st is only 12 days away, but it may be a momentous one for the State of Israel for the wrong reasons and with clearly predictable and potentially catastrophic negative consequences. That's because Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is determined on that day to annex portions of the West Bank, a move most of the world, including the United States, is warning against. This week's topic, therefore, is land for peace or land for war. First, though, I've been receiving emails from listeners, and thank you to all who've shared their comments with me, but I'm having problems with my email program. If you've recently sent an email to me but didn't receive a response, please resend that email. I apologize for this, but technology clearly has its downside. One such email this week actually disappeared from my computer just as I began to read it. Now to this week's topic. As I said, even the United States is warning against annexation on July 1st or at any other time in the near future. That the United States itself is issuing such warnings is telling in itself. That's because the Trump administration is directly responsible, at least in part, for Netanyahu's desire to go ahead with annexation. In the so-called peace plan the president unveiled in January, the United States proposed that Israel would get to keep fully a third of the West Bank, 33% of it, in any deal Israel is able to strike with the Palestinians. Netanyahu, probably for the reason I'm about to give, wants to move forward without any deal by annexing merely 3% of the West Bank at this point. At least, that's what we think he wants to do. He hasn't really told anyone. This is something I've argued very strongly since Netanyahu's first stint as Prime Minister back in 1996. The man doesn't have an ideological bone in his body. His only concern is Bibi Netanyahu. Bibi is his nickname, by the way. His only concern is himself and his place in the history books as Israel's longest-serving prime minister. Whatever he has to do to stay in power is exactly what he will do. Depending on which way the political wind was blowing, for example, Bibi's been opposed to a two-state solution in favor of a two-state solution, or waffling between the two positions. He champions the demand of the religious parties to control such matters as marriage, divorce, and Jewish identity, but he has no love for anything religious. On a trip to New York in 2014, for example, Netanyahu had lunch with casino mogul Sheldon Adelson, a staunch financial supporter of his, at Fresco by Scotto on 52nd Street in Manhattan. Fresco by Scotto is a decidedly non-kosher restaurant. Bibi said he had the veal. Even as he was getting bad press at home for trafing out in public at lunch, Bibi followed that with dinner with his family, friends, and supporters at the Chart House restaurant in Weehawk in New Jersey. It's a non-kosher seafood restaurant offering shrimp, crabs, and calamari. Bibi champions the agenda of the religious parties for one reason only. He gives them what they want, and they help keep him in power. Right now, Netanyahu's in the early stage of a criminal trial in which he's charged with bribery and breach of public trust, stemming from three separate police investigations. 
Among other things, Israeli prosecutors contend that the billionaire Hollywood producer Arnon Milchan, whose film credits include Pretty Woman, L.A. Confidential, and Fight Club, traded expensive cigars and pink champagne for favors Netanyahu could deliver, such as getting Milchan's U.S. visa extended after the United States decided not to do so. A year ago, earlier this week, Netanyahu's wife Sarah pleaded guilty to charges of misuse of public funds. The various criminal cases against Netanyahu and his wife have threatened Bibi's longevity as prime minister. Israeli voters had to go to the polls three times in the past year before Netanyahu could even form a new government, and he was only able to do that because he agreed to voluntarily step down midway in his term to make way for his chief political opponent and now defense minister, the Blue and White Party's Benny Gantz. Israeli law doesn't require an indicted prime minister to step down until he or she is actually convicted. Bibi needs to fire up the right-wing base that he depends on in the hopes of influencing the outcome of his case. He's publicly demonized the attorney general he himself appointed, and the Israeli police, and the justice system itself. By pushing annexation at this time, he undoubtedly hopes his nationalist one-state supporters will take to the streets, if necessary, to keep him in office and out of jail. With only 12 days to go until July 1st, however, it seems as though almost no one in Israel or anywhere else really knows what Bibi's plans are for annexation. He hasn't even shared his plans with Israel's military or with his defense minister, meaning Benny Gantz. When he does hold meetings, he fails to bring along maps that would show what he's planning. Gantz is Bibi's coalition partner, as I noted a few moments ago, making a power-sharing deal with his chief opponent was the only way Netanyahu could avoid a fourth election and form a government. One concession Gantz made to close the deal was that he agreed, in principle, to annexation. However, after meeting with Netanyahu this week about Bibi's plans, which everyone agrees were sketchy and not all that revealing, Gantz said he and his party wouldn't support whatever Bibi has in mind right now. Said Gantz after the meeting, quote, Prior to any measure, we will make sure all professional factors voice their opinion. By that he means the military people and the intelligence people. And in any scenario, he said, we will not support applying sovereignty to areas with a Palestinian population in order to prevent friction, unquote. Gantz also seemed to issue a vague warning to Bibi, quote, I am sure the Prime Minister will not jeopardize the peace treaty with Jordan and the strategic relations of the State of Israel with the United States with an irresponsible move, unquote. Gantz clearly was referring to the world's reaction to Bibi's announced intention. Country after country has come out against annexation. Belgium, in fact, has called on world governments to recognize the West Bank as the state of Palestine if Bibi goes ahead so that Israel would then be guilty of stealing territory belonging to another country. Jordan has made it clear that any such move on Israel's part will effectively end the peace treaty between the two countries. In a meeting in Ramallah this week with the Palestinian Authority leader Mahmoud Abbas, for example, Jordan's foreign minister, Ayman Safadi, warned that annexation is, quote, a destructive, unprecedented move that will destroy all foundations of the peace process, unquote. 
He also pledged that Jordan would do everything in its power to frustrate the plan. Said Safadi, quote, If Israel carries out annexation, it will have chosen escalation and conflict instead of peace and will bear the consequences, unquote. Last Friday, Yusuf al-Otaiba, the United Arab Emirates ambassador to the United States, took an unheard-of step for an Arab diplomat. In an op-ed article written in Hebrew and published in an Israeli newspaper, Yediot Achronot, he appealed to Israelis directly to convince Netanyahu not to go through with the plan or else risk all of the progress Israel has made in establishing ties with the UAE and other Arab governments. Even APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, Israel's chief defender in the United States, appears to be opposed. According to news accounts, APAC told members of Congress it was okay with APAC for them to openly criticize Netanyahu's plans. APAC traditionally makes a big deal of it when members of Congress say bad things about Israel. Not this time, it says. Clearly, Bibi is trying to rev up his national right base. No one on the nationalist right, or the religious right for that matter, is willing to give up an inch of what they call Greater Israel, a euphemism for the biblical land of Israel, and they tend to loathe anyone who suggests that they do. There's no argument one can make against the secularist nationalists because for them compromise is not possible. They won't accept an Israel that doesn't include all the land on both sides of the Green Line, basically the border between Israel and the Palestinians that existed on the day before the June 1967 Six-Day War began. I can understand why they feel that way. Let's be honest. When we prayed for 2,000 years for a return to Zion, we more had in mind the old city of Jerusalem, Hebron, Bethlehem, and Nablus, the biblical Shechem, than Haifa or Caesarea or Elat. That's where so much of our formative history played out, and they're all located on the wrong side of the Green Line. For that segment of the religious right that accepts Israel as legitimate, and not all do, the argument goes deeper. Jewish law, they say, forbids giving up even a single acre of the land of Israel for any reason. Holders of this view cite a couple of commentaries to a biblical and a Talmudic text that state that settling the land of Israel is of greater merit than all the other mitzvot, all of the other 613 Torah commandments combined. These are commentaries that say that, remember. The texts themselves that are being commented on don't say that. This is an indisputable fact. Our sages of blessed memory often used hyperbole as a device to underscore the importance of a mitzvah, of a commandment, and this is no exception. In one place, for example, it was claimed that the wearing of ritual fringes, of wearing tzitzit, is the commandment that outweighs all the others combined. In another instance, it's tzedakah that has that distinction. In yet another instance, it's the study of Torah that surpasses them all. In other words, the commentaries cited to back up the claim that Jewish law forbids giving up any part of the land of Israel are not Jewish law at all. They're just the exaggerated opinion of the commentators who are trying to make a point. There's no question that the ideal is for the historic homeland of the Jewish people to be in the hands of the Jewish people. But as the Torah makes clear 52 times, 
meaning that it's indisputable Jewish law going all the way back to Moses, we must respect the rights of the non-Israelites in our midst. One such iteration appears in the Torah portion for this week, known as Shalach Quote, You and the stranger shall be alike before the Lord. The same ritual and the same rule shall apply to you and to the stranger who resides among you. Unquote. Think about that. If the West Bank is annexed to Israel, everyone living between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River must be treated equally under the law. That would include one person, one vote and it would not be too long before the Palestinian Arabs in that one combined state would have enough votes to vote the Jewish state out of existence. The solution to this, to what is often referred to as the demographic time bomb, would be to deny the Palestinians a vote, but that would violate Torah law, such as the one that I just quoted. So it's not accurate to claim that Jewish law demands taking all the land, even though there's nothing in our text specifically saying that. Other Jewish laws that do appear in our texts work against it in any case. On the other hand, there is biblical evidence to suggest that giving up land is not so great a sin, or may not be a sin at all, if what's received in return is worth the price. In the book of 1 Kings, we're told that the wise King Solomon swapped 20 cities in the Galilee for the building materials he needed to complete the temple and some of his other grandiose building projects. Yet the biblical text, which never shies away from criticizing anyone, not Solomon, not his father David, not even Moses himself, the biblical text offers no condemnation of Solomon for trading away parts of the land of Israel. From the Bible's perspective, from the perspective of the Tanakh, trading those 20 cities for cedar wood is a pretty good deal. In the current situation, trading land for peace is a really good deal if the peace offered is a true peace, which would have to include recognition of Israel as a Jewish state. That recognition, though, is an apparent red line for the Palestinians at the moment, one they seem prepared never to cross. And Mahmoud Abbas and others in the Palestinian Authority have made that very clear time and again. I discussed their track record of avoiding making peace in Episode 9 in this series of podcasts. For those who argue that it's a sin to give up any portion of the land of Israel, there's this also to consider. There are the sins of Pikuach Nefesh, putting people's lives in danger, and shfichut damim, creating situations that inevitably lead to being forced to take someone's life. Pikuach nefesh is considered to be preeminent in religious Judaism, and not just hyperbolically. As I've said in earlier podcasts, almost nothing, not even Shabbat or the laws of Kashrut, takes precedence when life is merely suspected to be at risk, let alone actually so. Here, the religion-oriented spokesmen for not trading land for peace offer a simplistic and wholly unrealistic, even absurd solution. If the Arabs in the territories will not live in peace, throw them out. Then there'd be no pikuach nefesh, no danger to life. No consideration is given by them to the almost certain violent response from the Arab world and the condemnation and reprisals that will come from the rest of the world. Just the talk of annexation has led to condemnation. And reprisals, violent reprisals, will surely follow any annexation attempt. For many on the extreme religious right, however, such things are of no concern. 
at work for them is a theological premise we've seen before, a premise that always ends in disaster for us, something, in fact, the halacha, Jewish law, specifically forbids, reliance on a miracle. The religious nationalists truly believe that if they start the war, God will finish that war. It didn't work for the zealots in the year 67, when they provoked Rome into a war that ended with Jerusalem, the temple included, in ruins three years later. There's an irony here, by the way. On the evening of July 1st, religious Jews begin a three-week period of mourning ending on the 25-hour fast day known as Tisha B'Av and marking the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. How does anyone think the Arab world would react to expulsion of the Palestinians if not by going to war? The choice for Israel is whether to trade land for peace or seize land and plant the seeds of another war. If Bibi goes ahead with his plan, violence will surely follow, lives will surely be lost on both sides, and a fourth Arab-Israel war becomes a possibility. Jewish law doesn't support that kind of scenario, and neither does common sense. In Israel's previous wars with its neighbors, wars it didn't start, no matter how much others want to rewrite history, the world, for the most part, stood behind Israel. Now, the world is making it clear that it will see Israel as a rogue state, a state isolated and alone, with no one to turn to for help if, God forbid, this next war doesn't go the way the three previous ones went. Of course, there are those on the nationalist and religious right who deny that dire consequences would follow annexation, especially if Bibi decides to annex all of the 33% of the West Bank that Trump's plan proposes. Of course, it's possible, they say, but it's not likely. The Arabs don't want to lose yet another war to Israel. Jewish law has something to say about that as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, there's something known as the law of the parapet. It's a chapter heading for a whole body of law requiring us to anticipate potentially bad outcomes in the things we do and the actions we take. Here's what it says, quote, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof so that you do not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone should fall from it, unquote. Rabbinic decisions make clear that this law is subject to the broadest possible interpretation. Thus, the Talmud declares that it's not even permissible to keep a damaged ladder in our homes on the off chance that someone may inadvertently use it and be injured or worse. Maimonides, the Rambam, in his law code, explains that the parapet law includes, quote, everything, everything that is inherently dangerous and could in normal circumstances cause a person to die, unquote. Anything that fits the bill, he says, requires a parapet to be built around it, meaning that every effort must be made to avoid injury or death. The late 19th century commentator Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch went so far as to say that the Torah's parapet law even requires, quote, local civil authorities to intervene to have anything at all which might be dangerous removed from a person's home, unquote. In other words, if we don't get rid of that ladder, the police should come into our homes and do it for us. That's how seriously the law is taken. Anticipating the potential for tragedy and doing whatever it takes to avoid that tragedy is yet another Jewish law going all the way back to Moses. What Bibi plans to do, or at least claims that he plans to do, is to remove the parapet from the roof. 
The secular right in Israel may not care anything about Jewish law, but the religious right, especially because its adherents claim to be more right than we when it comes to observing Jewish law, must put Jewish law ahead of any nationalist ideal. Netanyahu is playing a very dangerous game with the future of the Jewish state and the lives of the people in it. Religious arguments supporting him in this dangerous move violate Jewish law, and those who make such religious arguments on his behalf need to take a very hard, clear look at what Jewish law really does have to say. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you think about this and my other Keep the Faith podcasts. Go to www.shamai, S-H-A-M-M-A-I, Go to www.shamai.org and email me, please. And if you have emailed me and didn't get a response, please resend that email. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy and stay safe.